Thank you all for joining. Today we have <laughs> a remarkable, truly remarkable Pasuk, a verse in Tehillim. So deceptively simple, but so incredibly profound and inspirational. I'm really excited about this Pasuk. I've spent about six hours trying to figure it out. And I hope that you're gonna leave this class as excited as I come to it. King David, the Davon Melech, is now in the midst of sharing with us verses that begin with the letter Kuf. In our previous lessons, we talked about his calling, Karasi. Why did he call? Who did he call? When did he call? Today, we're going to talk about the first of two preemptive verses. Verse 147, which will be the sole verse of scripture that we study together today, begins with the words, Kidamti, I preempted or preceded. Verse 148 will tell us, Kidmu'enai, my eyes preceded. We're not going to have time to get there today. But we will focus on the notion of Davana Melech's preemptive strategies. I want to begin by pointing out that the word kidamti is a possessive Hebrew word for the word of kodem. Kodem means before. Before. Before whatever it might be. For example, we could say kodem first before we do everything else. Here's what we'll do. And then after, we'll move on to the next step. In, in the Torah Hebrew, as well as in modern Hebrew, the word hakdama, which is a noun, is freely translated as a preface. Here's the hakdama. Here's the preface or preamble to what we're about to do. Invariably, it indicates something that is used as a precursor or in a verb, if it's used in a verb, verbal sense, not a verb, but as a verb, not as a noun, it means I did something before, something was done before, maybe preparatory, maybe preemptive. David HaMelech says, now possessing this noun, he says, Kidamti, I preceded. Who did he precede? When did he precede? In what way did he precede? And what can that teach us? Well, that's going to be the balance of Mirz Hashem of today's class. I hope that everybody who is coming on board has already joined us now. And my dear friends, if I may humbly suggest, we're all in for a treat because we're going to be delving so carefully into the nuances and details of the words that David HaMelech uses that it's just going to be thrilling. I guess that's a little hakdama. That's a little preface. And now, on to the meat of the matter. David HaMelech says, Kidamti, I preceded, preempted, prefaced. According to the Mitzudah's David, Kidamti refers to David HaMelech's habits of waking. He says, Kidamti, I proceeded l'chol adam, all other people, l'amid to get up, 
Beneshef. And we'll soon talk about when exactly Neshef is. But David HaMelech essentially woke up before all others. So according to the Radak, to the Metzudah's David, the word Kidamti, which means I preceded, means I preceded all others in my waking habits. I was the first to rise. That's the w- meaning of the word Kidamti. According to Radak, he says something very similar. He says, Kidamti, Kidamti l'chaladam. I, I woke up before everybody else. And he says, Shakam l'hispalal balayla. David woke himself to pray at night. Whereas everybody else probably wakes up in the morning. So according to both Mitsudas David, as well as the Radak, the notion of Kidamti refers to David's waking habits. He would rise before everybody else. According to the Evan Ezra, however, the word Kidamti does not refer to David HaMelech's waking. It refers to an activity. And specifically, the activity is the next verb in this verse. Kidamti, I preceded, when, here we have a noun, Baneshef, and we'll soon talk about what Baneshef means, when exactly David HaMelech would rise. But Kidamti, according to the Ibn Ezra, is Kidamti Va'ashaveya. I preceded, I preempted others by praying. I preempted and prayed. In the words of the Ibn Ezra, Koidam Shayukumu Bnei Adam, before they rose in the Neshef, I was yearning for your words. And we'll soon see exactly what that means and what he was praying for. So, just so we're clear, according to the Befarshim, we seem to have two different approaches to what David HaMelech preempted, what he did or prefaced, preceded others by. According to Mitsudas, according to Radak, it refers to getting up before others. According to the Ibn Ezra, it refers to praying before others woke. But not when David HaMelech woke. He didn't wake up before others. He prayed before others, even woke. I should point out to you that in the words of another great Rishon, the Me'iri, he says, Kidamti lokum mimitosi. He's even more explicit. He says, I proceeded to get out of bed before all other people. What did I do? So he kind of takes us in the direction of Ibn Ezer that David HaMelech woke up and prayed. But then again, the Mitzudas and Radak won't argue with that. That's what the Pasuk says. That's what the verse says. The verse says, I proceeded in the Neshef, and I prayed. In other words, nobody's arguing about the notion that King David prayed. And nobody's arguing that he got up very early in the morning. And nobody's arguing about the fact that he preempted everybody else. The question is, what does the word kidamti actually refer to? And unless I'm making a big mistake, it seems pretty clear to me that the more common approach of the Pashtani HaMikra, of those who explain the scripture, Metsudas, Radak, Meiri, is that Kidanti refers to the notion of waking, and then what did the David HaMelech do when he woke up early? Then he prayed. Okay, so we've established the meaning of the word kidamti. We seem to have two schools of thought. When? 
When did he do this? Whether it was the early waking or the praying. When did he do the Kidamti? The Pasuk says, Vaneshef, in the Neshef. Mitsudas Tzien says, Baneshef Balayla. It means at night. And he brings us a cross reference in the 21st chapter of the prophecies of Isaiah. Baneshef, in the night. So David prefaced all others, preempted all others by waking up in the middle of the night. Radak similarly says, Be'oid Laila, when it was still night. So when it was still night, Kidamti Adam, I woke up before others, and Radak actually emphasizes this a second time. He says, Kom lehispalel, David Melech rose to pray Balayla. Ibn Ezra, however, says, B'nei Adam, koidem shayokumu b'nei Adam baneshef. He says, I, 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 I came and preceded others before they woke up in the neshef. So what does neshef mean according to the Ibn Ezra? Seems to mean dawn or morning. Because that's when yokumu b'nei Adam, that's when most people get up. Now here's something really interesting. There's a Gemara in Mesechet Brachot. It's found on page 3, side 2. And the Gemara has exactly the same question that we have right now. What is the meaning of the word Neshef? And the Gemara actually quotes a number of verses that use the word Neshef. And the Talmud seeks a solid understanding of this relatively enigmatic word. So the Gemara wants to suggest that maybe Neshef is the morning. And then the Gemara brings a number of challenges to that. The Gemara wants to suggest Neshef is night. And that doesn't seem to add up either. So the Gemara says, if so, what is, after all, the meaning? And so the Gemara qualifies. Elo, here is the final word. Omar Rava. Rava said, some maintain that this is Ravashi and not Rava, and there's much to talk about that, but regardless of who said this, whether it was Rava or Ravashi, today Nishvehava. The question as to how could Neshef be morning when Neshef seems to indicate evening. The question was, the question was how could Neshef be evening when Neshef seems to indicate morning. So the answer is, there are two Neshefs. So when is it? It can only be in one time, at one place. So the Gemara says like this. In the morning, Neshaf Lelia Vaasiya Mama. In the morning, night is shifting away and day is entering. So as night shifts or jumps away, the Gemara seems to understand it in the term of kfitza in the term literally of springing away or shrinking away. So when it shrinks back, therefore Neshef would be morning. It's the transitional period, the shrinking back of night and the ushering in of morning. That's called Neshaf Laila. The word Neshaf then is a permutation of shrinking or jumping. And Asiyamama day comes. And then he says further, there's another Neshef. 
and that's Nishaf Yomama, when day fades or shrinks, jumping into the background, Va'asi Lelia, and night falls. So in other words, the Gemara is pretty clear that Neshef means at dawn or dusk. That's the term Neshef. Which brings us to a very big question. Why would the Mitzudas Tzien, the Radak, and the Meiri all seem to ignore the words of the Gemara? And they say that Neshef is talking about night. So I don't know the answer with certainty, but here's my take. It seems to me that because Mitzudas David and because Radak and because Meiri and others understand the notion of Kidamti, David HaMelech's preceding to refer to his waking, it can't be at dawn because we know David HaMelech would wake in the middle of the night. In fact, in this very psalm, if we head back to the letter Ches, Psalm 119, verse 62, David HaMelech clearly states, Chatzot Laila Akum. I would wake at midnight. And in our class on this verse, we discussed this notion of how David HaMelech would wake, what he would do, his musical alarm clock. The bottom line is that David HaMelech was up in the middle of the night. That's clear. That already says in, Psalm, in, Psalm, in the very same Psalm, in verse 62, here we are now, almost uh, 90 verses later, in verse 147, and David HaMelech cannot contradict what he said earlier. So if Neshef means dawn, and here he says, Kidamti, I got up before everybody else at dawn, that would contradict the notion of David getting, getting up in the middle of the night. Therefore, they come to the conclusion that Neshef must not only mean the shrinking or changing or shifting of times like dusk or dawn, but Neshef can also mean the dead of the night. It has to. Because otherwise, how would you explain Kidamti by Neshef? Ah, but in Ibn Ezra, he didn't say that Kidamti refers to the notion of waking. He says Kidamti refers to the notion of praying. Ah, if it's praying, it doesn't talk about when David HaMelech woke up. It says when he is praying. Everybody is just like stretching their eyes, waking up, it's dawn, and David HaMelech is already in praying mode. You don't just spring out of bed and get into praying mode, it takes time. Some grooming you need to do, you need to take care of yourself. A chasidish, he goes to the mikveh, you learn a little chasidis, you do, you have preparations. Maybe an hour and a half after waking, you're actually at that point in a prayerful mode. To be in a prayerful mode takes preparation. So David HaMelech was all primed and prepared. When everybody was just waking, he was already praying. Why don't the Mitzudas David, Radak and Me'iri follow that approach? I think because Va'ashaveya means I cried out. I was crying for salvation. So if Kidamti means I woke up, not I woke up, but I prayed, and Va'ashaveya means I prayed, I prayed and I, and I, and I, and I beseeched. He says already pray. Ah, so for this, we now go into the word Va'ashaveya. What does it mean? According to the Mitzudas David, Va'ashaveya has no particular interpretation. He says, I woke up, la'amayd, kidamti l'chaladam, I woke up before all other people, la'amayd, baneshef, in the middle of the night, ve'etzak l'chabetfila. 
So va'ashaveya is a cry in prayer or a prayerful cry. And that's the ashaveya, a prayerful cry to Hashem. Radak doesn't really say what it is. He doesn't interpret the word va'ashaveya at all. He just assumes. Come lehispalo. It's a form. It's one of the forms of prayer. That's the way David and prayed in the dead of the night or before everybody else was ready to wake up. But according to Ibn Ezra, if he says Baneshev, he's a literalist. And a liter on a literal level, Baneshev doesn't mean at night. Baneshev means the Gemara clearly comes to the conclusion at a transitional time, dawn or dusk. So if David Amelech woke up in the middle of the night, Baneshev has to mean in a transitional period, namely at dawn. So then Kidamti can't refer to getting up because David Amelech has been up for hours. It must mean then the Kidamti, he proceeded to pray. So what is the meaning of Ashaveya then? Aha, listen to this. The Ibn Ezra has a very, very fascinating way of suggesting what David Amel did. At the end of the Pasuk, he says, is Lidvarcha Yicholti. For I hoped or yearned for your word. He explains as Lidvarcha Yicholti. That you will listen to the In the words of Avram Chaim, Rabbi Avram Chaim Fiora, who wrote a beautiful English interpretation or translation of Tilim, he said, I exerted myself to rise early, and he has to mean, he has to mean rising in the middle of the night, not at this time so that he would be the first to pray on a new day in order to pave the way for all other prayers which followed his. I don't know where he gets this from. He maintains that that's his understanding of the Ibn Ezra. Okay? Who might argue? So maybe that's what the meaning of the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra to me says, You should save or bring salvation to the one who cries out for salvation. In other words, David HaMelech began to pray before everybody else not because he was praying for himself. He was praying that Hashem accept the prayers of others. So Kidamti means I prayed. I proceeded by prayer by Neshef and everybody was getting up. Va'ashaveya, what was I asking for? In addition to praying, David HaMelech was crying out for salvation for others. Va'ashaveya refers not only to David Amela's cry, but Va'ashaveya, others should be saved. Because I yearned and hoped for your word. So, if you take that approach, it, everything kind of lines up. So it turns out like this, just to recap. If I'm not mistaken, we have one school of thought that says Kidamti refers to prayer. To waking. According to that school of thought, if Kedanti refers to waking, then Baneshev has to refer to the night. In that case, Vashaveh has to refer to prayer. However, if we are to say that Baneshev is at dawn, like the Gemara says, then Kidamti would have to refer not to waking because Davana Melch woke at night, would have to refer to something else. What would he do in the morning? He would pray. We know that. Okay, so Kidamti refers then to prayer. When 
Baneshef in the dawn when everybody else was just waking, David HaMelech was already primed and praying. And he was ensuring salvation for others. So it wasn't just praying. He was actually empowering or enabling the prayers of others so that Hashem might accept their entreaty. And this is all because David HaMelech yearned and hoped for Hashem's word. Now, what is the meaning of so if we say that Ba'ashaveya means I'm praying on behalf of others, Davramalakh is saying, I, I'm yearning for your word. I'm hoping for your word. And because I'm hoping and yearning and crying out to you and hoping for your word, I'm hoping you'll accept others' prayers. Okay. But if we say Ba'ashaveya simply means I prayed. So what's I prayed because Lidvarcha Yachalti? What's the Ladvarcha Yecholti? What's the yearning or hoping for Hashem's word? So the Mitzvah's David, he explains it in a very interesting way. He adds an important Hebrew word, an important Hebrew word to the mix. And the word is ki. Incidentally, as Rashi tells us many times in the, in the Chumash, the word ki has multiple meanings. But here, ki would have to mean because. So David HaMelech is justifying, explaining. He's, he's clarifying to us why he's doing something. And why does he wake in the middle of the night to pray? Ki ledvarcha yechalti. Explains the Mitzudas. Ki because I yearn and I hope lekayim dvarcha. Because I want to fulfill your words. Because I want to fulfill your words. That's why I'm praying for them. So what does this mean? Because I want to fulfill your words, that's why I'm praying for them first thing in the morning. So I'll go out on a limb here. And I want to make a suggestion. The David HaMelech is explaining to us how he approached the fulfillment of mitzvahs and the kind of thing that fired his Avedis Hashem, his service to God. There's a beautiful story told about the Hasidic master, Reb Levi Yitzchav a colleague of the Alta Rebbe. The Alta Rebbe was very close to the Barditchev. When the Alta Rebbe wanted somebody to look at the Tanya before he printed it, he sent it to the Barditchev, who exclaimed, such a great God, compacted into such a small book. When the Alta Rebbe was arrested by the Tsarist authorities and accused of treason, high treason. He asked that they go to the Blavitzchabadichev to give a pidgin efesh so that he might pray in his behalf. And they only recently heard that when the Blavitzchuk passed at a tragically young age, the Alta Rebbe traveled to Bardichev to offer condolences personally. The Blavitzchuk's widow said to the Alta Rebbe, who will blow shofar for me this year? And the Alter Rebbe said, I will. And that year, the Alter Rebbe left Liadi and his chassidim, and he spent Rosh Hashanah in Barditchev, blowing shofar in Rav Lev Yitzchak's stead. Anyway, going on back to Rav Lev Yitzchak, so the story goes that it once happened that on the arrival of Sukkot, 
there was one person who had a beautiful esrog. I don't know if it was the only esrog in Bardichev or it was the most beautiful esrog in Bardichev. But Rav Levi Yitzchak very much wanted to make a bracha on that esrog in the morning. Rav Levi Yitzchak was, uh, just to give you another insight into his personality, one year came home after Yom Kippur, after fasting and praying, probably standing on his feet all day. And he had dinner, as is customary, a yom of dinner. And then he said to his wife, there's no dessert. <laughs> no dessert. And, and she said, dessert? Rav Levi Yitzchak was a person who was totally divorced from material pursuit. Dessert? He said, yeah, yeah. Dessert. Bring me a mesechet sukkah, which is nearly 40 pages long, 40 daf, pages of the Gemara. And then when he finished Grace After Meals, he rose and stood on his feet and spent the entire night enjoying dessert. Namely, studied the entire tractate of Masechet Sukkah. So Rav Levi Yitzchak, as the story goes, when he concluded the, the Fabrengen or whatever it was that he led for his Hasidim in the Sukkah, he set off for this rich man's home. And he asked if he could please wait by the lul of an esrog, because he wanted to make a bracha as soon as day would break. Because this is a mitzvah that can only be performed when day breaks on the first day of Sukkot. On the night of Sukkot, we can fulfill the mitzvah of dwelling, spending time eating in the sukkah, but not the mitzvah of arba minim, of the lul of an esrog. So he said, of course. And at some point, the members of the family went to sleep. And Rebbe Yitzchak was standing next to this china closet. Well, like a break front with glass doors where the lulav and most importantly the etrog were being kept. And the story goes that he was staring at the lulav and esrog, I'm sure contemplating Torah teachings about the lulav and esrog. And that, that was the way he remained all night. In the morning, the people in the home were woken to a startled crash shattering of glass. They came running downstairs, and there they saw that Rebbe Yitzchak had forgot to open the glass doors, but in his excitement to fulfill the mitzvah, had crashed through the glass with his hands, he was probably bleeding, and he was holding the lul of an esrog. So this gives you an example of how a tzaddik functions. What's a tzaddik's yearning? What's our yearning? What do we look forward to? What does a tzaddik look forward to? It's not really important to talk about what we look forward to. It's safe to assume that it's something of material, either libido, pleasure, fun, self-aggrandizement, or something like that. We look forward to things of material benefit. We'll do a mitzvah, I hope, maybe even with some joy, maybe with some excitement, but that's not really what gets our goat. It doesn't really grab our attention. Tzaddikim can't wait to do a mitzvah. David HaMelech couldn't wait to pray. He was waiting. He was waiting for, for night to be able to come to an end so that he could pray. And why was he praying first thing in the morning? Why couldn't you pray when everybody else prays? Mitzvah says, because I yearned. Because I hoped for your word. Because I was yearning and hoping. That's why I preceded all others in my prayer, in my calling out, in my yearning for closeness to Hashem. 
Now, if this is correct, I think it is. If this is correct, what the Mitzudah's David essentially is telling us is that David HaMelech justifies or explains his practice of rising so early or has the notion of him not being able to sleep. He's waking up in the middle of the night. Is because David HaMelech is yearning and hoping and he can't wait for a new day of mitzvahs, a new day of fulfilling Hashem's will. Maybe you heard people say they couldn't sleep the night before their wedding or couldn't sleep, woke up early on the day of a big trip because they're excited about it. That's how David HaMelech looked at life. That's how he saw every opportunity for a mitzvah. And he prayed, and he yearned, and he hoped, Ledvarcha. And that's why he was praying. So early in the morning, dare I say, so late at night. Now the Radak seems to follow a similar but slightly different line of reasoning. He says, Ledvarcha Yecholti refers to a specific promise. Sha'ata Hivtachtoni. The Malbim maintains that this refers to the promise that Hashem made to David HaMelech through Nosan HaNavi, telling the prophet Nathan that he would, in fact, respond to David HaMelech's prayers and that he would listen to his entreaty. So why does David HaMelech wake up so early? Because I yearn for your words. Because you told me you'll be listening. You told me you'd hear. And because you made that promise to me, I don't want to waste even a moment. In the middle of the night, I'm at it already. The question, of course, that I'm left with is how would the Ibn Ezra explain the words, How does that justify or explain why David HaMelech was concerned with others' prayers or entreaty? Va'ashaveya, he says, I'll be helped. They'll be helped. For your words I yearn. How would he explain that? And here it's going to get really interesting. So the same Avram Chaim Fuer, in his, uh, or in his commentary, he seems to believe that the words of the Ibn Ezra, Shateshiyah HaMeshaveya, are actually echoed by the Radak as well. He seems to believe that David HaMelech imploring Hashem to accept the prayers of all people with kindness and favor is like an extension of the promise that Hashem made him. He's sharing his good fortune. I'm not sure how he came to that conclusion, but that's what he, he believes. So I want to take, uh, take you now back to the Radak, because the Radak offers a secondary interpretation of the words, the first, you made a promise to me. I'm, I've been guaranteed, I'm assured. The second, he says, is, oy, maybe, he says, or, pirushai, the meaning is, to the words that are written in the Torah. And this is found in the fourth chapter of Deuteronomy. In the ninth verse, Moshe Rabbeinu says, Who is a great nation? 
that Hashem, who is a great nation that has this relationship with God, whenever we cry out to Him, Hashem answers. He says, So because you promised or said that we're a great nation, a nation that Hashem is always ready to listen to, that's what I'm banking on. That's why I'm thinking that you're going to listen to me. You're going to respond to me. You're going to respond to me because in your Torah you said you would respond. Bechol kareinu we love. I've got to tell you the truth. I, I, I found this Pasuk very strange. What, what is Radak saying? What, what does that mean? David Melech is saying, I got up to pray early because you promised everybody you were going to listen. How does that in any way indicate or explain or justify David HaMelech, King David's specific behavior? Even more interesting, when I took a look at the Me'iri, I found the same thing. V'yecholti l'dvarcha, says the Me'iri, I hoped for your words, sheta'aneni, that you would respond to me, ki imros chabateira, like or as you said in the Torah, Deuteronomy 4, 7, Ki Hashem love. So it's not unique to David HaMelech. It's for all of us. If it's for all of us, how does that explain David HaMelech's rising middle of the night? What does that have to do with David HaMelech's proceeding or doing something before everybody else got to it? To me, this was a big mystery. I really couldn't figure it out. So, I did remember, interestingly enough, that the Rambam, in the beginning of Mishnah Torah, the Rambam, in what's called Minyan HaMitzvahs, when he goes through the 613 mitzvahs of the Torah, before it, this is as a preface to his Mishnah Torah, to his recapitulation, restatement of the entire oral Torah, after going through all the, the biblical mitzvahs of the Torah, then he speaks about the notion of the Sanhedrin introducing an added mitzvah. Not a mitzvah which is added to the Torah, chas v'shalom. The Torah has 613 mitzvahs. But the prophets, or the Sanhedrin, could add a mitzvah which would be a rabbinic mitzvah. As he says, that this, is, this notion of 613 mitzvahs is precise, we are re responsible to keep all of those mitzvahs and we're not permitted to depart from them or add to them. The Torah says, Lo tosef alav, velo sigrami menu. Do not add to them, do not subtract from them. And he says that means, and I quote, Shelo yehei novi rashoi lechadesh dover. A prophet may not introduce new things, veloimer, and say to you, Shahakodesh baruchu tzivahu. That Almighty God commanded us be mitzvah. To add to a mitzvah of the Torah. Or to subtract from the 630 mitzvahs. But if we can't add to mitzvahs, how do we have rabbinic mitzvahs? Ah, I'm so happy you asked. Says the Rambam. But if the Bezdin referring to the Sanhedrin, the high ecclesiastical court of the Jewish people, Im Novi, together with the participation of a prophet, Sheyi Yuba Isi Hazmon, Mitzvah Derech Takona, 
a new instruction. But this is as, or in the form of an injunction. Or whether it's a decree, whether it's an illuminating or corrective behavior. That's not an addition. They're not saying that God said we should make an Erev, which is a mechanism that allows us to supersede certain rabbinic restrictions. Or or to read the last book of, of, of the last of the Megillah, the last of the scrolls, which is the scroll of Esther in its time. Because if we were to say that, then there'd be Mosif ala Torah. And that's not permissible. You can't add to the Torah. It says that Rambam, This is essentially what's being said to us. The Nevi'im, and there were a number of prophets at the time, together in tandem with the Sanhedrin, the high ecclesiastical court of the Jewish people, Tiknu, in, instructed or instituted, Vitzivonu, and they instructed us, commanded us, Likris ha to read the Megillah in its appointed time. Kedei in order lahaz kirshavachov shalakodesh baruchu, so that we might mention the praise of God. Uchuois shaosolanu, and the acts of salvation that He performed on our behalf. He was close to our cry. He was available. He took the call. So that we might bless him and praise or thank him. And now Rambam says something fascinating. This is an order to broadcast, to make known. To future generations, that that which we were assured, guaranteed, promised in the Torah is true. What promise is he referring to? This very pasuk that we just talked about. Who is the great nation to whom Hashem is close? In other words, the meaning of that verse, that God is always ready to listen to us, that's a description of what happened in the time of Purim. And that would then be an instruction for us at all times. Should we ever end up between a rock and a hard spot? Should we ever be in a difficult, painful, or, or, or overwhelming situation? Ah, then you must know. You must know that Hashem will respond to you as he did to your ancestors. So, Radak and Meiri are quoting a verse, a pasuk, that speaks about the Jewish people calling out to Hashem in exilic or dark times. What does this have to do with David Abalach? It, it's a verse that speaks about a nation, not an individual. The Mepharshim and the pasuk speak about us coming together as a nation and us being able to cry out to Hashem not about dark times? Sorry, our Pasuk shouldn't be about dark times. This, this could be about dark times. It could be. In all times. Maybe especially in dark times. And fascinatingly, in the commentary of the Sephorno, he says, Kidamti means, I proceeded in the night 
not the literal night, proverbial night. No, Elie Wiesel's first book, what's it called? Night. It's not about fun and games. Galut is metaphorized as night, suffering, darkness, difficulty. He says, in the darkness, in the night, I proceeded to cry out, out of the intensity of the agony, of the suffering, of the misfortune, of the pain. I hope for your word. What is your word? Your word is, You will cry out to me, Misham from there, and then you will find that I will listen. So the Sephardim is going even further. He's talking about Davon suffering. He's talking, he seems to understand this preceding or preempting behavior as being the description of reaction to darkness, to difficulty. This is how one responds to disruptive situations which, which seem to overwhelm or threaten to inundate us by praying with a sense of surety and confidence that God will respond to us. In Hasidus it says, I forgot to bring the Sefer, I would read it to you from inside, but there's a Hagof in the Tzemach Tzedek and the famous Maimar Nila Daidi, but it's brought down in many places in Chassidus, that the word Sham over there refers to Klipa, refers to a circumstance, a situation which feels disconnected from God. But Zeh, Zeh is when you can see it, like Zeh Keli, this is my God. So Bikashtami Sham means in a distant exile. In a confounded, in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a confusing situation. That's the meaning of Bikashta Misham. So how does that work with this business of David Melech waking up early in the morning and the story about Bikashta Misham? What's going on over there? But so this David is telling us David Melech is yearning for closeness to Hashem. It's a description of David HaMelech's righteousness. In fact, the Al-Sheikh goes even further. He says that the meaning of this verse is in the beginning of the night. Va'ashaveya, what's ashaveya? It's not a regular prayer. He says it's a yearning, it's a, it's a, it's a heartfelt cry and prayer. That your words should come to me. yearning for prophecy. He's praying for a prophetic revelation. That's Ladvarcha Yacholti. I because I yearn for your words. Shayove Dvarcha Libalila. That your words should come to me at night. So speaking of the highest levels of holiness. Vadak is talking about Davra Melech, wrapped up in holiness, with a singular focus on mitzvah and spiritual fulfillment. Al Sheikh is saying it even refers to a yearning for spiritual intimacy, a oneness with God, where God makes his words known to David HaMelech. The Ibn Ezra says he's praying for somebody else. And the Bavram Chaim seems to think that that's the pshat in the Radak, and the Radak is talking about a situation where God promises that even in a dark or difficult reality, I'll still respond to you. And we know that because the Rambam clearly explains that verse as referring to the time of Purim. They put this all together. 
How does one, so to speak, fit with the other? And it seems that they are reading very different verses, a very different verse, I should say, of Tehillim. Okay. So all this got me thinking. And it sent me, it sent me off to Purim. And I want to share with you an amazing teaching from the Rebbe. And maybe, maybe this teaching from the Rebbe can help illuminate our chapter of Tehillim over here. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe. There's a, a fairly long, extremely sophisticated, and deep and profound rumination, edited rumination from the Rebbe on Purim. That's found in the 16th volume of Lakuta Sichas. There are actually, there are not one, but there are three Purim dissertations in this particular volume of Lakuta Sichas. This is the first of them. And it would take me about two hours to go through everything that Abba talks about here and explain it in a way that would be somewhat reasonable or palatable. I will try, to the best of my ability, to share with you just a gist, just a small element of what the Rebbe talks about over here. And before I talk about what the Sicha says, I did want to share with you the words of the Gemara in Masechet Yoma about Esther HaMalka. And then you'll hear how the Rebbe interprets and explains that very same Gemara, which is in the milieu of a much, much bigger and longer thesis. And truth be told, it's impossible for anybody to appreciate what I'm going to share with you now unless you take the time to study the entire rumination. And of course, we should do that. But for the purposes of understanding the Tillam, I'm going to try to excerpt just a few small details and present them to you in a manner that will illuminate the verse of Tillam that we're studying and perhaps explain to you the differing schools of thought that are being espoused by the different Pashtunim, the different commentaries on Tehillim. So the Gemara says that Esther was metaphorized as Ayela Sashachar, the morning dough, not like the Pillsbury dough boy. Dough, dough like a, like, a, like a fawn, like a deer. And the Gemara gives a, you know, one, one explanation as to why Nimshala Esther la Yola, why she's like a, a small deer or like a, like a doe, and how the Yola is always dear to her companion. Esther was always endeared to Achashverosh. And he, he never, so to speak, his love for her didn't wane. So she's like a doe. And then Esther is also compared la Shachar, to the morning. Now, Psalm 22, in the book of Tehillim, is a prayer that Esther Hamalka identified with. In fact, as she was entering the royal throne room on that fateful day, when she was going to approach Achashverosh, uninvited, of course, literally risking her life and her spiritual well-being, because now she was initiating a relationship with Achashverosh instead of being a passive recipient, she felt the Shekhinah leave her as she walked through the, the hallway leading into the throne room. And she was very distraught. And she began to pray. And her prayers 
utilized the verses of the 22nd chapter of Tilam. And the 22nd chapter of Tilam, the incredible capital, is actually identified with Esther Amalka. So it starts off, Lanatzech ala Yeles HaShachar. Yeles HaShachar is a particular kind of mourning instrument, actually, but it also could mean an ayola is a, is a foe, a, a doe, and a shachar is mourning, mourning doe. So anyway, the Amr Ravasi, Ravasi says, in Zigamara Daf Chavtes, Amr Dalaf, Ravasi says that Lama Nimshala Esther Lashachar, why was Esther compared to mourning? Loimer Lachat to tell you, Ma Shachar, Saif Kal just as mourning comes at the end of the night, Af Esther, Saif Kal Esther is the closing chapter in our prophetic tradition of miracles that happen to our people. So the Gemara immediately says, What? Esther is the closing chapter? Hanukkah is a much younger holiday. It happens almost two centuries later. Vaha'ika Hanukkah. There is Hanukkah. So the Gemara says, true, there is Hanukkah. However, nitna likasev kamrinan. We mean to say a miracle which would be prophetically documented in the form of the Jewish Bible. So there are apocryphal Hanukkah writings, but they are not considered Jewish. They are not part of our Bible. The end of the Bible, the end of the Ketuvim, the end of the writings, the last miracle spoken of is the miracle of the story of Purim. So that's why Esther represents the end of the night, the morning which comes at the end of the night. So the Maharsha famously asks in this Gemara, what? Esther is the morning because the morning comes at the end of the night and the night is a string of miracles? On the contrary, night is a string of darkness. It's the opposite of miracles. And the Maharsha struggles to explain this of how, despite the fact that there could be, so to speak, proverbially night, but nonetheless, a lot of, many of miracles began at night, and he says, uh, Kriyas Yamsuf was, was, began at night, and, and the Levi Mitzrayim began at night, and even the story of Esther was Balayla, who began at night, so that's the meaning of at night. Anyways, that's the Gemara. So again, this is an incredible sikha with the Rebbe, this, the juxtaposes the Babylonian Talmud's tradition with the Jerusalem's Talmud's tradition, and the Rebbe it, it really offers a, a fresh perspective, suggesting that the Bavli and the Yerushalmi are not arguing, and they're saying different but kindred things. And he explains the difference between Mordechai and the difference between Esther and what her request was and what Mordechai's request is and the different dimensions or elements of the festival of Purim, what Purim would have been with without Esther's contribution, not only the story and the miracle, but in the formulation of how this miracle should be, that Mordechai focused primarily on the spiritual element, on the tshuva, on the resuscitation of the Jewish people's spirits, on the reclamation of the devotion and their dedication to Hashem's Torah, almost like receiving the Torah or accepting the Torah upon themselves all over again, a holiday of spirit. But Esther represents the notion of the Jewish people's being saved in a bodily or corporeal sense. It's about material magnificence. Esther brought about the holiday of Purim as we know it to be a celebration which is not spiritually focused per se or spiritually expressed like Hanukkah, as the Lavush famously says, contrasting the celebration of Hanukkah as one of lights, candles, fire, 
flames, lamps, this is a spiritual thing, with the notion of shiras v'shizbaches, songs and praise, mealtimes and feasts are not really a part of the celebration of Hanukkah per se, at least not according to most opinions. The Ramam is the sole opinion that ever believed that had some appreciation for the idea of a halachic kind of responsibility for even a material meal. But the rest of the Paschim don't hold the Ramam at all, and they, they say it's, it's really a spiritual holiday, as Lavush explains. But when it comes to the Yom Tif of Purim, we say this is about celebrating in the flesh, so to speak. We're giving gifts to each other, and, 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 and we're, we're giving gifts to the poor, and we're having a huge meal. It's a meal like, unlike any other on the Jewish calendar. And we're imbibing in wine, lots of it. So this is a, this is, it was Esther who really defines the essence and allowed for the development of Purim as we know it today. That's a very lame attempt to try to sum up what the Rebbe says up until this point. And midway in the Sikha, the Rebbe begins to talk about that Gemara. He mentions the Gemara earlier, he mentions the Gemara again. And he says that the notion, he asks the question of the Marsha, why is Esther called Saif Laila? And he has a very different approach. Very different approach to the Marsha. The Rebbe says that the achievement of Esther was in transforming the darkness into light. And this was the last time that the darkness was transformed into light. As it says in Hasidus, the house of Ahasuerus became a yeshiva or a kailu. The house of Haman. Ahasuerus himself became a great friend of the Jewish people. It was under the tutelage of his monarchy or his son's monarchy that the Beis Hamikdash was actually rebuilt with funding from the Persian Empire. So in the time of Purim, Hanukkah, we battled the enemy, ultimately destroyed the enemy, and achieved self-determination to a degree, to a very large degree. But we didn't see this notion of transformation of darkness into light. Whereas Esther represents the idea of transforming the light that comes from the darkness. And the Rebbe says, Nimshala Esther l'shachar, the Rebbe says that Oyer HaShachar, the light of day, so to speak, breaks, day breaks. It breaks after the night. It's Saif Kalila. This indicates that it's Nimshach Min HaChai Shekadmai. The appreciation for day and the arrival of light is so valued because it comes after a long night. And the Rebbe says this represents the idea of Mahapech, or transformation of the darkness into light. And the Rebbe even suggests that the word shachar is indicative of this. Quoting a manuscript of the Tzemach Tzedek, who suggests that the word shachar, which means morning, as in shacharit, he says, comes from the word shachrut, which means blackness or darkness. Kadros v'cheshech, means being in a state of darkness and gloom. So out of the darkness, out of the gloom, out of the blackest of nights, comes the most lit up of days the joy coming from the gloom. It's the, it's the transformation. This is what Esther represents. And the Rebbe explains it in the terminology of Kabbalah, quoting a Zohar that says, Ayelet HaShachar, more broadly speaking, refers to Knesset Yisrael. And he says that refers to the lowest level of the world of Atzilus, which is called Malchus of Atzilus. And in the way that it, it, it experiences investiture in the lowest of worlds. So it's like a person 
lowers themselves to take care of somebody who really needs your help, to be responsible for somebody who wouldn't be able to put life together if not for your aid and assistance. And he says that the word Esther, we know, is rooted in the terminology of Hester, of concealment, of darkness. And at the same time, we say Hadassah, he Esther. And the Gemara famously tells us that Hadassim refer to tzaddikim. The fragrance of the myrtle represents the beautiful deeds of the most righteous men and women. And so Esther is Hadassah, and the achievement of Esther is the transformation of darkness into light. And this is the idea of shachar, the idea of breaking, about, breaking out from the darkness. I'm not doing this justice, and I, I, I hope you're able to understand something of what, what the conclusion or the point that the Rebbe makes here in the Sikha. But then the Rebbe does something fascinating. He says, as I've discussed many times, every mystical or spiritual concept is also going to be found in the halacha realm, in the practical realm, in the exoteric dimension of Torah. And here, Rebbe sends us off to the beginning of the codes of Jewish law. He says the Tur, which is the forerunner of the Shulchan Aruch, it's written in the same style, the same chapters. The Shulchan Aruch is patterned after the Tur, written by Rabbi Yankar Balaturim. So we're talking now 14th century. The compilation of the Tur presages the ultimate compilation of the Shulchan Aruch. So the Tur says like this. Omar David, he says that you should wake up, the Tur says you should wake up early in the morning. Don't sleep until you're sated, he says. But rather, overpower your sleep and wake yourself early. You wake the dawn. Don't let the dawn wake you. You proverbially wake the morning. Don't let it wake you. Awake my glory, awake my pride, awake my harp, my lyre. I wake the morning. And the Torah says, Ani meir hashachar, I wake the morning. Be'en hashachar meir oti. But the morning doesn't wake me. That's what the Torah says. The Shulchan Aruch, at the very outset, quotes this halacha that says we should wake up early in the morning. In the words of the Shulchan Aruch, who doesn't begin with the whole preface of the Torah, he starts off simply by saying, in the morning, you should rise like a lion, pull yourself together with the stamina and strength of a lion. To wake in the morning to serve Hashem. You should wake the dawn. And that's it. But he doesn't say, you wake the dawn. He doesn't finish with the words, don't let the dawn wake you. Don't ein hashacha meiroti. So the Taz Bagan David, 
which is a, one of the two major commentaries on Orachim, this section of the Shulchan Aruch, points out something happened over here. The Torah wrote, you wake the dawn, don't let the dawn wake you. But in Shulchan Aruch, Rabbi Yosef Karo left out the words, don't let the dawn wake you. He only included the first part of the phrase, you wake the dawn. So he says, says the Torah, the Taz, this is what the Torah writes. I wake the dawn. Why does it need to be that whole, that added extension at the end? And he says, the Taz says, I believe this is the message. A person who hallows, sanctifies, or prepares himself to live a life of holiness. You prepare. You reach out to Hashem, Hashem will respond to you. So it is also with inspiration. There are two kinds of inspiration. You first awaken, meaning you reach out to Hashem. This is Kabbalistic terminology, by the way. The Rebbe spoke many times about the idea that the Taz and his father, Lubach, were also big Mekubalim, studying much Kabbalah. This is called in the language of the Tsar, Itaruta Dilatata, an awakening from below. Then there comes an awakening from on high. And this is what David Amela said. That he was on such a lofty level of holiness. That his rousing himself in holiness, that his stirring himself and his reaching out to Hashem was so powerful. He doesn't need the dawn to wake him. I can wake myself, he said. I can pull myself together as I yearn, as I seek Hashem's presence. I don't need to be, so to speak, coddled or lifted up. That's what the Taz says. So what does that mean? Who doesn't need inspiration? Who doesn't need to be uplifted? The greatest of tzaddikim requires Hashem's help. In fact, we have a statement which is made that if not for HaKadosh Baruch Baruch helping, that a person, even a tzaddik, would fail. And the tzaddik is told, he should never believe in himself. So what's going on over here? So the Rebbe goes on to explain in the Sikha that clearly what the Taz is telling us is that on a certain level, David HaMelech did not require the encouragement that an ordinary person requires. David HaMelech didn't have to be urged at the point when he had destroyed his Yetzirah. He no longer had desires for things toxic, unhealthy, and unholy. David HaMelech didn't need to be encouraged in that direction anymore. He, he was yearning for closeness to Hashem. He was the Aved of a tzaddik. Regular people need to be constantly encouraged. They need to receive constant extra push from on high, otherwise they'd fall and slip and trip and fail. But not David HaMelech. So this is because of David's great level. He says, in I don't need to be woken. I wake the dawn, not the other round, way around. But the Shulchan Aruch says, for ordinary people, that's different. We, knew, we do need to be woken. And here the Rebbe says is an incredible question. Incredible question. The Alter Rebbe began to rewrite his Shulchan Aruch a second time. Unfortunately, he did not get very far. 
he only rewrote the first four chapters. It's called Mahadura Tinyana, the second approach, second version. And we only have the first version. Even that we don't have the whole thing. We only have the first version. In the first version, it's told, we're told clearly that a person should wake early in the morning and he quotes the words of the actual Shulchan Aruch. He says, Yizgaber olav lakum that if the if if that if like, that even though he's not so to speak sated with sleep, so he should overcome that desire to sleep in the morning. You should wake the dawn, not the other way around. And then Alter Rebbe goes on. He should think in his heart before whom he's lying, and Hashem is waiting for you, and so on and so forth, just like the Shulchan Aruch. In the second time when the Alter Rebbe rewrote the Shulchan Aruch, the Alter Rebbe did something very unusual. He said, a person should wake early in the morning, before day breaks, so that he should wake the dawn, as it is written in the 57th Psalm, I wake the dawn, but the dawn doesn't wake me. And then the Rebbe finishes with three words, Zoi Mida Benes. That's the average. <laughs> this is average. Anybody can do that. So the Rebbe said, what's going on here? The Taz explained that the Shochan Aruch doesn't bring the words, don't let the dawn wake me, because this is the Aveda, the service of David HaMelech, it's Aveda Satsadikim. But regular people need to be woke. And here, with Alter Rebbe rewrote the Shulchan Aruch, suddenly he shifts into a different mode, and he says he goes back to the tour, and he says, "Ani Aida Shachar, Ani Moira Shachar." The pasuk means, "I wake the dawn." Ve'ena Shachar Meirosi. Now he's quoting the tour, and then, as if to add insult to injury, he says, "Do be the madness." This is for an average person. That's for an average person. The Taz said that's for a great tzaddik. What's going on over here? So the Rebbe says that the Madura Tinyana is written based on the mystical teachings of Torah and the secrets of Kabbalah and the illumination of Chassidus. And he says, on a literal level, a Bainani, like the Gemara says, an in-betweener is a person who's got half sins and half merits. Whatever, he's in-between. But the mystical Hasidic interpretation of a Bainani, as the Rebbe advanced it in Tanya, is what? It's a person who will never do an Avera. He's called an in-betweener because he hasn't transcended the desires for material pursuit. But an Avera, a sin? Out of the question. The Rebbe suggests that's the Midah Benini that the Alter Rebbe is talking about. And the Rebbe goes on to explain that in the difficult, painful circumstances of darkness and golos, a person reaches the level of Mesirat Nefesh. Sirat Nefesh means a willingness to lay your life on the line. A willingness to give everything away. And the Rebbe says, when a Yid reaches the level of Masirat Nefesh, and that that comes out of a Galut reality, then a Yid is able suddenly to achieve what Esther achieved. 
that you can turn the darkness into light, that you can be transformative. I illuminate the shachar. Shachar doesn't wake me. And it relates this to this whole story of Esther. Do you know that in the last mimer that the Rebbe gave us, the Rebbe says there that the purpose, the mission of a Mordechai, of a Rebbe, is to awaken from within us the power and the drive, the courage and the fortitude and the stamina from Mesir Nefesh, even, even when it's not a dark time. We should have Mesir Nefesh on a good day. We should be ready to yearn for and reach higher all the time. In other words, in other words, if we take this idea and we superimpose it back over Psalm 147, David HaMelech was preempting everybody. Why was he preempting everybody? He's preempting everybody. Ashaveya says to Ibn Ezra, David HaMelech was not praying for himself. He was not trying to only uplift himself. David HaMelech describes, as the Radak says, as the Alshach says, the service of the most lofty, the highest form of righteousness. Alshach puts it like yearning for prophecy. But then Radak comes back and says, Oi Pirushai, another interpretation. And he sends us off to the Megillah. He sends us off to the story of Purim. He sends us off to a circumstance, a situation, which would enable us to rise to the fore and to yearn for the word of Hashem, even when things aren't dark or bad. That if only we can be uplifted, if only a Rebbe can light our candle, if only a Rebbe can inspire us, if only he can take us and bring us into a closer level with Hashem by revealing our essence, our own neshama, then we can all serve Hashem like David HaMelech. We can all serve Hashem in a way which, if it isn't precisely, can still mimic the avodah, the service of those who are worldly righteous. What I'm really trying to say to you, my friends, is that it seems to me that the differing schools of thought as to what David HaMelech was trying to do, what he was trying to tell us, are not really mutually exclusive, and there isn't really an argument. It's kind of filling in the, the details. What we're hearing about here is David HaMelech's yearning and desire to serve Hashem. What we're hearing about is David HaMelech's attempt to implant within us that same yearning, to enable us to be able to pray and connect in the same fashion. And he draws on the verse, Mi Goy Godol, for who is a great nation? For our nation is Bechol Koreinu we love, if only we will call out to him. Mordechai did that in the time of Purim. Rambam says the story of Purim is a lesson for us in all generations. Not only when things are bad, but as the Rebbe explains in the Maim Avatah all the time. And if, if this is true, if I'm not making a mistake here, it's really amazing. It's unbelievable. What we're hearing here is the Kidamti Baneshef. We're hearing, we're looking, we're, we're peering into the soul of a true Rebbe, appearing into the soul of a true shepherd of his people, David Melech, with tremendous sacrifice, with tremendous devotion 
And commitment to Am Yisrael was trying to elevate Am Yisrael by coming before the rest of them so that they too would be able to follow in his footsteps. So that we too can live an uplifted and inspired life. And so his insomnia was really all about inspiration. And this is not merely commentary on a life well lived in antiquity. A discussion of the monarch and sweet singer of Israel, King David, but rather Kidamte Beneshava Shavea is ultimately a calling to all of us, for we should know that it is possible, if only if we yearn for Hashem words, that we are able to receive our answer and able to feel that sense of closeness with our Kodesh Baruch Hu. So the Rebish Tehelfen, the David HaMelech's prayers on high, the prayers of all of the leaders, the shepherds, the tzaddikim, and especially of our Rebbe who continues to inspire us on high, will lift us into that final stage, the last moments, enabling us to transform the darkness of Golas into the brilliance and illumination of the era of universal God consciousness with the coming of Mashiach, then Heda will be Amenu Amen.